Okay. Let me see. We'll we'll pick up with um, three. No, we did. Uh, I, or maybe I just did it on Monday night because I know I've done this. I'll, I'll, let's do three. Um, very briefly, if I can go back. Remember, each quartet has a major theme, and each quartet plays variations on it. And each one of the sections is a different voice, a different instrument, so that it's analog as music, as you know. Um, in every quartet, he's, um, we can look at the quartets as meditations on the word. You know that, the, that he's, he's, a, he's writing a poem in a modern world to a non-Christian audience anymore um, that ceases to believe in Christ and is not going to hear proselytizing. He will not. So he has to find a voice that will speak to a world that doesn't hear anymore, virtually. And um, his major concern through all the quartets is this still point this intersection between time and the timeless. And all of the analogies of it, we looked at them, remember the last time, in the, in the, um, the dance, the stairs. Um, can't even remember them now, all of them. Help me out, what were the dance, the stairs? Um, oh, the, the Chinese jar, remember? Um, and the words themselves, um, and in each one of those instances, or and the wheel—that's what I was looking. Remember the wheel, because one of the beauties of the wheel as a as an illustration of the still point is the center of the wheel doesn't move; it's motionless. The farther you get away from the center, the greater the speed, the faster. So it's an image of, in some sense, every everything that involves motion, because. Behind all motion is this still point. So um, that's the major concern in East Coker. He's dealing with the same concern, but now in the context of um, the cyclical um, character of everything in nature. We know that things come into being and pass away. Um, we're in we're in middle or sorry the middle of winter. Um, winter will be followed by spring and then summer, and back to winter. So nature itself is cyclical, and it it seems to encourage a pagan view that everything's repetitive and cyclical. Um, that actually encouraged the pagans to think about reincarnation, that things come into being and pass away. What Eliot does, I think, beautifully, is present this theme of things coming into being and passing away, a time for this and a time for this, for living and dying. But in a way that, that, that gets to this still point again, and he does that in a number of ways. So once again, he's helping us to see more deeply past appearances. Ecclesiastes is a major text here, a time for growing, a time for dying, you know, all of those. Um, but unlike Ecclesiastics, and unlike the pagans who had this notion of a, of a cyclical character to nature, he's, he's presenting it in a way that makes it um, apparent, evident, that something more is there if we look. So very, very quickly, I'm just going to run through some of the major lines. East Coker, in my, in my beginning is my end. 
The end of our life is already implied in a number of ways in our very beginning. We are who we are. Even if we corrupt ourselves, it's still that I, whoever that I is. Me, Beb, Deb, you know, Jafani. In my beginning is my end. Um, death is already there in my beginning. In my beginning. Um, and end in a te- um, epist- um, eschatological sense, final things. The end is always there. The beginning and end of our life is the Alpha and Omega, God himself. He's there in the beginning, he's there at the end. So we can look at that a number of ways. We can look at it as an expression of uh, the cyclical character of things. We can also look at it more deeply. In succession, houses rise, fall, crumber, extended, old, old fires to ashes, ashes to earth. It repeats it again, in my beginning is my end. Now the light falls across the field. Remember, he, he describes the, the ceremony, that village ceremony, um, and the couple marrying, and he puts it in Old English, Middle English, remember? The association of man and woman in Donsigna, signifying matrimony, dignified and commodious sacrament. Two and two, he goes on. So he, interesting, he, he, he assimilates that into a, a poem written in modern English, but he carries in it the past in its own idiom, the Old English. Um, feet rising and falling, eating and drinking, dung and death. Always he's trying to reconcile opposites. Because look here, you know that the poem, this East Coker begins with, um, in my beginning is my end. He'll end it with, in my end is my beginning. And remember that, that was the passage that Mary Queen of Spots, um, Scott spoke when she went to her death, when she was executed. Her last words were, um, in my end is my beginning. She knows that when she dies, she enters into heaven. So Eliot's aware of all that. He's trying to pull opposites together to, to, to help get us out of a black-white mindset. It's always easier for us to be black-white and condemn something that's different instead of trying to reconcile, to bring them to, or to find a principle of reconciliation in the opposite. Section two, or um, section one ends, dawn points and another day prepares for heat and silence. Dawn points to what? To the end of the day, evening. I mean, it's, you know, I mean, a whole day is ahead of us, so there's a beautiful image. Dawn points, another day prepares for heat and silence. Out at sea, the dawn wind wrinkles and slides. I am here or there or elsewhere in my beginning. It's wonderful the way he leaves that in my beginning because we know that it implies so much more. And remember that line, I've gone back to it a number of times, I am here or there or elsewhere. When we take Christ into us, if we, or even if we don't, I mean, let's say somebody who's a non-believer, even though physically we tend to locate ourselves in space here, we know that part of us is in Florida. In Florida, or I mean, I'm saying that because our kids are there and you, they're struggling, and um, that um, space is relative, not just in an Einsteinian universe, but spiritually, because according to Saint Augustine, according to our own belief, we're we're a peregrine people, a peregrine pilgrim, a bird, a flight. We're on our way, um, so we're always in motion. Um, we're never here or completely here or there and will not be until end times. 
when, when, when our very existence is seated in eternity. Um, and we know then that that's not a static condition. If God is infinite, joy is going to go on forever, infinitely. Hard to imagine that, but... Um, section two, he says, what is the late November doing? It's that moment when um, another season makes its appearance in the season we're in. And I asked you to just be aware that when we get to um, Little Gideon at the end, what he does with that to me is extraordinary. Here he hints at it. It's like he's not fully seen it. But by the time of Little Gideon, he's going to show something to me that's just extraordinary. It's another way of reminding us that even though we're in a cyclical nature, um, or that a nature that has a cyclical character, there's always something behind it that shows the fullness of it all. You know, in the middle of winter, there's signs of spring or, or a late summer. Or we can't ever forget, even as, as cyclical as things seem to be, they all suggest something more behind them. So, um, um, in the second section, um, he, he, he returns to this theme of um, sort of being in between um, and he focuses on words. That was a way of putting it, not very satisfactory. A paraphrastic study in a worn out poetical fashion, leaving one still with the intolerable, intolerable rustle with words and meanings. And then he talks, you know, if, if we get into this habit of mind, it's, it, Eliot takes the rug out from underneath us all the time. If we, get out, if we get into this habit of mind of thinking, I'm older now and I'm wiser, I mean, I'm saying that because there are so many times when I think I'm so much wiser than I was when I was a kid. Yes. But if we had our heads on it, we'd say, there's something more yet. And it's as stupid of me to say that now as when I was young and thought I knew everything. You know? Either we're always growing and there's more. There's, because remember, wherever there's a mystery, there's always more to be known. That's the nature of mystery. So... He's sort of taking the run out, the rug out from old men. Had they deceived us or deceived themselves, the quiet-voiced elders bequeathing us merely a, um, a, a recipe for deceit? Um, this, the serenity only a deliberate um, beatitude, the wisdom only the knowledge of dead secrets, useless in the darkness into which they peered or from which they turned their eyes. The wisdom of old men is at best a questionable wisdom. However much we think we know, we have to be careful. I think about this with our grandchildren because we must present ourselves sometimes to them as thinking, we've got all the answers, we know everything. How foolish. It, it leads to the conclusion of this second section. There's always more to know. So he ends, do not let me hear of the wisdom of old men, but rather of their folly, their fear of fear and frenzy, their fear of possession, of belonging to another or to others or to God. The only wisdom we can hope to acquire is the wisdom of humility. Humility is endless. The homes are all gone under the sea. The dancers are all gone under the hill. How appropriate to follow that, that maxim, the only wisdom is humility, humility is endless, with two images of things that are in the pattern of recurrence that move towards darkness or death. Because the one thing we do know about everything in life is it's going to end, it's going to die. So after he gives us this maxim, 
the only uh, wisdom we can hope to acquire is the wisdom of humility. Humility is endless. The houses are all gone under the sea. The dances are all. What humbling lines, yeah? We're all going to die. Um, what's afterwards? So with that said, okay, the third section of um, East Coker. <coughs> section three. Oh, dark, dark, dark. They all go into the dark. The vacant interstellar spaces, the vacant into the vacant, the captains, merchant bankers, eminent men of letters, the generous patrons of art, the statesmen and the rulers, distinguished civil servants, the chairman of many committees, industrial lords and petty contractors, all go into the dark. And dark the sun and moon and the almanac to Gotha and the stock exchange to Gazette, the directory of directors and cold the sense and lost the motive of action, and we all go with them into the silent <coughs> funeral. Nobody's funeral, for there is no one to bury. We all meet death, so death is a condition of our life. So as one of the sections in Burnt Norton, we're going into this dark thing again, where in order to learn humility, we have to get past <laughs> All that we think we're in control of or possess. I mean, look at the list of captains, merchant bangers, distinguished, you know, chairman of many CEOs. They're all going to die. We're all going to go with them. Um, nobody's funeral, for there is no one to bury. We're all going to die. I said to my soul, be still, and let the dark come upon you, which shall be the darkness of God. As in a theater the lights are extinguished for the scene to be changed with a hollow rumble of wings, with a movement of darkness on darkness. And we know that hills and trees, the distant panorama, and the bold imposing facade are all being rolled away. Or as when an underground train in the tube stops too long between stations, and the conversation rises and slowly fades into silence, and you see behind every face the mental emptiness deepen, leaving only the growing terror of nothing to think about. I hate interrupting this, but I'm going to do this. It seems to me one of the um, connotations of this, that passage, that image in the train, is that we don't know what to do when we're not moving. I mean, the church constantly asks us, go on a silent retreat, be quiet, med you know. I can remember the first time I went on a silent retreat in California. It was in the, in the northern part. Um, the, um, Father Fessio, who was the head, he's the one who founded Ignatius Press. And he, he and John Galton were the head of the Ignatius Institute at USF. And I got involved with them and was invited up to a retreat up there. And we went up. There was a silent retreat for a couple of hours. I cannot tell you how awkward I felt not being able to talk. It, you know, it made me realize that sometimes you're just afraid not to talk, that when you're in the presence of other people, you're in company, if you don't talk, there's something wrong with you. You know, that you, I don't, um, but I, I remember th how strange that was to me to not be saying something. And how important was to have that retreat exactly for that reason, to learn to be at peace, to not have to, to feel like you don't have to say something. You know, that being quiet, it's good, and I, I'm reminded of it when, I, when Elliot gives this, because what, what's behind it, remember, is we're all going into the dark. There is this darkness that we have to face and a fear of it. Um, 
You see behind every face the mental emptiness deepen, leaving only the growing terror of nothing to think about. Or when under ether the mind is conscious but conscious of nothing, I said to my soul, be still and wait without hope. For hope would be hope for the wrong thing. Wait without love, for love would be love of the wrong thing. There is yet faith, but the faith and the love and the hope are all in the waiting. It's Advent, appropriate. Wait without thought, for you are not ready for thought. So the darkness shall be the light, and the stillness the dancing. Whisper of running streams and winter lightning. The wild thyme unseen and the wild strawberry. The laughter in the garden echoed ecstasy, not lost, but requiring, pointing to the agony of death and birth. You say I'm repeating something I've said before. I shall say it again. Shall I say it again? In order to arrive there, to arrive where you are, to get from where you are not, you must go by a way wherein there's no ecstasy. In order to arrive at what you do not know, you must go by a way which is the way of ignorance. In order to possess what you do not possess, you must go by the way of dispossession. In order to arrive at what you are not, you must go through the way in which you are not. What you do not know is the only thing you know, and what you own is what you do not own, and where you are is where you are not. I'm sure to a lot of people that would sound like gibberish, but if you think about it, they're profound. Go back to the, um, so the darkness shall be the light. Um, so re relinquishing everything here and going into the darkness, in Eliot's terms here, is to take us into the light of Christ. Because that, I hope that's clear, because that whole world to us is like the sunlight. We can't look at the sunlight, it's too bright. So the world of light that he's talking about is like the light in the cave. We live in darkness and think it's the light, you know, but it's only through the darkness that we can finally arrive at that light. And the stillness, the dancing, Remember, it's when we, only when we find that still point that we fully enter into the dance, because at the center of it is that point. Um, and all the images, the, the unseen time, the laughter in the garden, echoed ecstasy, these things are never lost. There's something always there, even if, even if we see it under the appearance of passing, of repetition and cyclical nature. Um, I'm just going to take a couple of these. Um, I shall say it again, shall I say it again, in order to arrive there, to arrive where you are, there's some sense in which even if we're here, we're not fully who we are. In order to arrive where we are, to get from where you are not, you must go by a way wherein there's no ecstasy, a discipline, penance, I mean, whatever it will be. Um, in order to arrive at what you are not, you must go through the way in which you are not. If our final end is with Christ in heaven, um, we, we have to go by means of something other than what we are right now. We have to take Christ into us to become what we're finally intended to be. I don't know if that's all being, I hope I'm being clear here, explicating that. Um, one of my prayers in the morning, almost every morning when I take a shower is, is um, Father, help me to be the son you've given me to be. Christ, help me to love the way you do. Holy Spirit, help me to serve, you know, to put myself away the way, you know, it's just, how do we get um, to what we are not except 
to go by a way that is not us. So on the surface, it all sounds like gibberish, but if you think about it in Christian terms, they're the paradoxes that are the central fact of our lives. Yeah, um, to arrive at where you are, lots of people are gonna say, what a stupid thing to say, you're there. Now, somebody who believes differently will say, but we're not quite there, there's more, you know. To arrive at where you are, to get from where you are not, from, to get from where we are not, um, you must go by a way wherein there's no ecstasy. To get from where you are not, to get to some place where we aren't quite yet, we have these things to do. So, so we've entered the dark, in this, the third section, we've entered the darkness and all the paradoxes that are hidden in it. Okay? Okay, let's. I'm going to do a very quick review. I said that last Monday, and Suzanne laughed at me. <laughs> Actually, she didn't. She scowled at me, and I laughed, and everybody else laughed. Um, a very, very quick review. The, the last couple of weeks of our time in the short stories, um, I um, tried to give some explanation for the disorders of our world. Um, I mean, the, the obvious, simple answer to our disorders is we live in a fall. I mean, the answer is Eden. To go back, actually, that's interesting. The reading this morning. But in terms of philosophy and thinking, the disorders of our mind and the way we see things and understand things, what I was suggesting is that one of the one of the causes of the disorders of our time is what we understand today as the social contract theory. You know that um, that coming out of the Middle Ages in the beginning of what are modern times, the rationalism that set in motion then, this intense rationalism that we live under, that the philosophers who began what we, what we know as the idealist tradition, it goes back to Descartes, the ideas in our mind are, are what we know, not, we no longer know things, but we know our ideas. Um, at that same time, these, these philosophers began to emerge um, with a political end in mind. They were attempting to understand the nature of our political systems, our governments. And Hobbes, Locke, and Rousseau were the major thinkers that contributed to this social contract theory. The basis of it is simply that we, by nature, we live in a state of war. And the only way to come out of that state of war is by entering into this contract. I won't do this if you won't do that. In every one of those instances, the, the social contract theorists believed it was essential that we give our will to a government. Hobbes believed that, Rousseau believed it. They had very different notions of our human nature. Hobbes believed we were depraved by nature. We live in a state of war. So he had that, uh, that modern idea of depravity. It's really um, Manichaean that we're, we're depraved, um, or it has hints of Manichaeism. We, we're depraved by nature, and the only way we can come out of that depravity is to agree to get along. And so his theory was we give our power, our wills to a government, giving them absolute power to mediate it. I hope everybody sees the irony of that. If we're all depraved and we give power to a government and make its, gov its powers absolute, um, Rousseau believed that we were innately good. He did not believe we were fallen. He believed that 
one of the causes of our disorders are bad governments. So his argument was that we're innately good, we're all in chains, the only way we can get free is by giving this general will to a government and letting the government um, sort of distribute things so that the inequalities disappear and people get along. It's like a, he's like a forerunner of socialistic thinking. You know. um, but the, up, the upshot of that is it produces this contractual frame of mind that the basis of our relationship to each other is a convention. The basis for one of the, the, the presumptions for in one case was depravity, Locke, or I mean Hobbes. The basis for the other was complete innocence. But they arrived at this, you know, the same theoretical construct. Um, um, but it's a, it's a convention. It's a construct. It's a contract. And it's, it's left its stamp on our modern mind, the way we do things contractually with each other. I mean, we've seen that again and again in the and I laughed about it a week ago, those of you who are here for the, I think in the opening, when, when you read the opening phlegm section, I mean, you're watching these men trying to outdo each other in these contracts they make. I mean, it's just, it's just stupid to watch these male, and Jody, in the beginning, who thinks he's gonna get the better of phlegm, he goes to his father and he knows exactly <laughs> what he's to do to hold leverage over this guy so he can profit from him. His father just shakes his head, and when Ratliff hears about it, Ratliff just laughs. I mean, so. But if you read the opening, you can't. There's nothing going on that doesn't finally go to this basic contractual structure in which men live. That's what they do. The classical way of looking at the world um, was very different because it rested on an understanding of our human nature. And Plato and Aristotle were very clear about it. If, if a government's ever out of tune with our nature, things will become violent. The disorders will intensify, they'll get worse. And some of the truths that came out of that I told you, just a, a quick review. Um, Plato said one of the most important things we can do with our own nature is to know ourselves. We cannot change, we cannot get better if we don't know who we are ourselves. Um, he said in the Republic, um, the, whole, the whole thrust of the Republic is to learn the nature of the soul so that governments can take their, can accommodate, can adapt themselves to that nature because if a government forms and it's, or if a government makes a structure that's in conformity with our nature, it should produce a better polity, a better government. He said in the Republic that one of the most important things we could do for ourselves is mind our own business. To take care to be as good as we can be because if we're going to be just to another person, we're going to get along with each other, we have, we have to mind our business, do what we should be doing. We can't be just to another if our souls are disordered. Um, and both men, Aristotle and Plato, both believed that friendship was the the cement of a good government. Do anything to undermine friendship and a government will fall apart. Um, and one of the last things that, uh, I mean there's lots but that stuck out in my mind is in the, in the Phaedo as he's preparing to go to his death and his friends are trying to persuade him to run away and he won't, he says the state gave me everything I've got. How, how can I leave it now? If, that, if it's asking my life, um, you know, I only have a life because I was nurtured. 
and the, the positive way of putting that is I became philosophic. Because of the freedom of a democracy, I could philosophize. How can I turn my back on that now? He makes an argument for showing that, that a soul can't become what it should become without being good, the, the nature of the good in the human soul. And he, he deduced from that that um, it's, it's, um, it's imperative that um, in our efforts to be good, we suffer the injury of another before we inflict an injury on that person ourselves. It's better to suffer something than to, to, um, to make somebody else suffering for ourselves. So there's a lot, and then Aristotle, you remember, um, described, explored the nature of our soul and saw that the end of our life is to be virtuous, to be good. And um, the only way we could do that is be, by becoming aware of the extremes that we're given to and learn to answer them, to come to a mean. The virtue is the mean between two extremes. That sounds simple, but I, but I don't think it is. If, you, if we grew up, with, we've lost any sense of virtue today. If, 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 we, if, to, if our, the end of our soul is to be good, that is to be virtuous, then it's really important to look at those things we're inclined to and answer them. You know, Don, by the way, is Dante doing any different? Does he say anything different in the purgatorio? We know the sins, pride, envy, wrath, sloth, avarice, gluttony, lust. If we, have, if we don't control ourselves sexually or we eat and drink too much or we want things too much or we don't love enough or we're too given to um, an int a wrath, not anger, but wrath, uh, extreme anger or envy, you know, we, we want to see somebody lose something because we don't have it, or pride, we want to get better, rise above people. Um, every, everyone, every, the whole work of purgatory is learning to become virtuous, answering those sins, and becoming good. The modern mind has lost any sense of that, so everything that came out of the, the classical world was based on our nature, who we are. It was an exploration of the human being. Now, Freud would say as much in his findings, but Freud doesn't believe in free will. He doesn't believe in God. I want to come back to this in a second. So, so that's what we—that's the world that we've lived in, and and we see it playing out in the stories that we've been reading. Just towards the end of our work in the short stories, um, we were reading stories. I didn't pick them out this way. I didn't wasn't on my mind. But if you go back to those short, short stories, you'll see, in an interesting way, dreams play a really major part in what happens in the, the last ones we read. Mrs. May has two dreams. Remember, the, um, Greenleaf opens with this dream of somebody, something munching, eating away at her garden. And later in the story, she has another dream as if the sun is trying to burrow into her property, past that tree line, remember, because it blocks it out. When she wakes up, I think we're given the sense that it was a bullet, like something trying to kill her. The bull is an image of Christ with the crown of thorns. It, it impales her, it pierces her heart. She does everything she can to protect her own sufficiency and all of her accomplishments. And be, because she makes that everything, it makes her put other people down. She thinks of the Greenleaf children as being worse than her own. They're not, they're far better, you know. She, she blames them for killing the bull when it's her. 
She does everything. She It's sort of over-controlling. She wants to keep the world the way she wants it, to not let anything in. That's why the member for Flannery O'Connor, Grace, always involves a violent. It has to break through our resistance. Two dreams. In Flowering Judas, a dream. Remember, it ends with Laura having that dream of Eugenia. We went through that. And um, I don't know if you guys were here. I'm really sorry if you weren't. I can't go through it. But you, you remembered. I, I, kid, I kidded you guys about giving you a test to see how well you were reading, because you know how, what I think about reading. That the whole story is told in the present tense. And how many readers would be aware of that, whether you caught that? The whole story is told in the present tense. Ordinarily, stories are told in the past tense, what we call the Priterite tense, because the Priterite involves an action that's already completed, a whole action. The story's told. Almost always. It's rare to get a story in the present tense. It happens sometimes. This was one of the rare ones. And if you follow it, you see. Now, the question is, why did um, Catherine Ann Porter do that? I think the answer is that Laura does everything she can to keep herself in a present so that she doesn't have to deal with reference points outside of time to other things. It's like a way of controlling it. It's, it's wonderful because it, you know, it makes us aware there are so many different ways we can hide from Christ. Um, the only two exceptions to that tense presentation are two scenes that she recalls, both of which have to do with lovers, men who are going to intrude on life. And in both instances, she breaks it off. I mean, they're comic if you read it. Tr tragic comic, in a sense, because it shows that she doesn't want to love how much she's... She committed herself to the revolution, and then she's disillusioned by it because the revolution promised what Christianity did, salvation and peace to everybody. And, you know, all the ironies of that we talked about. Bragioshi is, um, is presented as a savior figure. He's going to save everybody. Communism presented itself as a substitute for Christianity. Salvation, an earthly paradise, that, that was his great tragic flaw. Um, and he and his wife are estranged. At the end of the story, it, it shows him, it describes him going home. And what does his wife do? Wash his feet. So the parodies of Christ run everywhere through that story and they come to a point at the end in Laura's dream because remember she, she falls asleep in Eugenio, new life Eugenio, Eugenio ironically new life, he's dead and she's implicated in his death. He comes to her in the dream and says come with me and then there's all the imagery of the Eucharist, come follow me, take my hand, take this, take this, uh, my, my body and blood. It's a parody of the Eucharist. And she wakes up, I think frightened, terrified, because what's happened is really an inversion of the Eucharist. And I reminded everybody to go back to the, um, the Inferno of Dante. Remember at the center of the Inferno, you've got Satan eating Judas, Brutus, and, Brutus and Cassius. And in all of the episodes leading up to that final one, uh, the major theme that runs through them is eating, feasting. Frau Berigio is a priest, and a, a demon took over his soul when he would treacherously betrayed his brother. He called his brother to a banquet, killed him. Um, um, Adam, Master Adam, is bloated with water. I mean, all of them have to do with eating, feasting disorders. Um, and the question to ask is, why? Well, for obvious reasons, if hell is opposite heaven, and it is, 
Um, what you would expect is that because at the center of heaven is the Eucharist. It's God freely offering himself to feed, to bring life to others. The opposite of that is to feast on others and take life from them. It goes back to the suitors in the Odyssey. So it's a beautiful story and it makes us aware that any time we use another person as an object, we invert the Eucharist. We, we take life from them and step outside of the Eucharist. We, um, we eat other people. We contribute to some degradation, some demeaning thing, take, taking life away from them. But the question that I came to last week after we read the story is, why all these dreams? Because we're going to see one, or a vision, why all these dreams and visions? And by the way, Mrs. Turpin had that revelation. Remember? So in, just coincidentally, so many of these stories gave us visions, dreams. Um, and Ratliff, you know, in the, in the uh, Eula section, the Eula section ends with this vision. He has this vision, that's what I want to get to, with this vision of phlegm, God, taking over hell. <laughs> it's just so funny. Why all these visions and, and dreams? Because in a world in which people resist grace, dreams is a way in which grace can come to us when we put our defenses down. So, so grace circumvents reason. It gets around it, right? When we go to sleep, reason relaxes. Now, I want to just add a note here because it, it's, it's no accident that these dreams keep showing up in literature because literature itself is a kind of vision. It naturally gives itself to that. Um, Freud said man has no free will and Freud believed that, that man by nature was depraved. That what motivated him was an edible instinct and what he called polymorphous perverse. That the sexual instincts in us dominate what, they, what we do and they're all perverse. Freud believed in an animal unconscious. And there's, I think there's a lot of truth to what he said even though I'm troubled by his view of man because there's lots he didn't see. And his, and his ultimate view is that man is depraved. I, I don't happen to believe that either, but, but we're capable of depravity. I think we all know that. Um, our own belief um, is that we're not, we, weren't, we weren't completely ruined by the fall, the way a Protestant believes, that we're depraved. We believe we were wounded concupiscence, we're left with that, but it is so overpowering that we can become depraved. We can, we can do depraved things. I think we all know that. Um, what Freud didn't see is what we could call the spiritual unconscious. He, he saw more clearly an animal unconscious, but because he didn't believe in God and he didn't believe in free will, he had no sense that a grace could enter through the unconscious. That was simply beyond him. But what we're seeing in these stories is just the reverse. Because grace, something supernatural, is entering through dreams, through visions, through revelations. In dreams we suspend reason, our defenses are relaxed, and something is allowed in. So very often dreams in literature are, are present revelations of the, I would say in each one of these cases, it's an instance of grotesque comedy that each one of these, Mrs. Turpin, Mrs. May, Laura, 
are all offered graces. What they do with them is another thing, but, but the graces are there. Okay. Um, before we turn to the Hamlet, just coincidentally, I was really struck by this coincidence. You know, in the last couple of weeks leading up to Advent, that most of the readings were from Daniel, the book of Daniel. And Daniel had these three visions. You know, um, to, um, he interpreted one of them for Nebuchadnezzar and then his son, and then he had this vision of the four beasts. And in every one of those, um, his interpretation, his reading of those dreams was, they were revelations of what Nebuchadnezzar, his son, and everybody else was going to lose. He was um, prophesying um, in those periods when Jerusalem had been taken over by Babylon. And Nebuchadnezzar and his son, all they thought that they were these great thing kings who were um, beyond reproach and who had this great power. And Daniel's warnings to them were that um, their days were numbered. And he gave the image of a member of the statue with the golden head and the silver chest and arm. That what, what came through in each one of those visions was that this great empire was going to collapse and be replaced by another one and another one and another one. Because all of those empires were going to give way to the kingdom. So one of the questions that I want to ask everybody, just in light of the readings, because we've had it from the beginning. Remember when we read Dante, the world for Dante was Egypt. In the beginning of Purgatory, when the ship of souls comes, they say, from Egyptio, from Egypt. Leaving the world is leaving Egypt for a Christian because in the world we're too given to it like the Jews in Egypt. That's why they had to come out to go to the promised land. So all of that is a prologue, a, um, a foreshadowing of the spiritual life for a Christian. The world for us should be in Egypt. We have to leave it. We're on a voyage. We're, we're in exile. We're on our way to the kingdom. So the question that I want to leave everybody with, um, remember, Jerusalem was occupied by Babylon. They'd taken the temple things. That's why, that's why um, in the second vision, the, the writing on the wall comes, because the king uses the things, the holy vessels from the temple, the drinks and things. And he wanted to show his power that he'd conquered and taken these things from the temple. And immediately this hand appears and starts writing. And he calls for Daniel to read it. And he says, you've offended God. Your, your days are numbered. Jerusalem's occupied. So let me put the question, is America occupied today? <laughs> In light of the stories that we've been reading, you know, we've been talking about a, an America turned from God. Is America occupied? Is this Egypt? Is it Babylon? Where are we? You know, these lines, um, I am here or there or, you know, um, <coughs> Here or there, um, I'm here or there or, or, or elsewhere in my beginning. In my beginning, then what is my end? Where am I in this state that we're in? If this is Babylon or Egypt, I don't want to go there, but I just would like to throw the question out, okay? So let's, let me do the, let me do, let's turn to. Um, the Hamlet. But let me stop before we turn to the Hamlet. Any questions or thoughts or comments on I'd sure like to know where you think America is. 
<laughs> I don't want to go there. Okay. okay. That's fair. No, no, it's not. It's not. Um, I, I really try to be scrupulous about avoiding political things. Let me, but let me know. I don't want to. Um, I, I, I actually, I mean, I think you probably all know. I think, I think we've lost our way pretty seriously. Let, let me try to give some clarity to this because I don't want to just open up a big black hole here. Um, in our founding, the founding fathers did something that I think is extraordinary. The Declaration of Independence. What Lincoln did in the addresses to me is even more. If you read Lincoln's um, um, Gettysburg, the first inaugural, second inaugural. More importantly, if you read two of his addresses that he as a, you know, moving around, one of them is called the Lyceum Address and, a, the, te and the Temperance Address. If you go through Lincoln's works and you read the Lyceum Address and the Temperance Address, and the Temperance Address, I may be confusing, it's been so long. Um, I think it's in the Temperance. He's addressing an alcoholic group. God bless his soul. God bless that man. I said coming out of the movie last night, Debbie, <laughs> what I said, God bless those men. God bless those men. For, I, mean, I, I, I mean, really meant that so deeply. Yeah, yeah. God bless Lincoln. Um, in his temperance address, he's addressing a society of alcoholics. He's a president. And he's making this argument. He's making the argument that the men who should be in charge of that program, overseeing it and carrying it out, are not men who are not alcoholics, but men who have been who are recovering alcoholics because they've been there and know. Because the men who don't are going to be in their heads, self-righteous, missing a lot. He make it's a, it's extraordinary argument, and it's it's so sensible. You know, if if you're going to, hmm, yeah. Exactly. I mean, that, that was the beginning of it. Um, he's saying that the people who are, are best qualified to help these men get their lives back in order are those who have recovered from those because they know it from the inside. But he goes on to do, this is what's extraordinary, and he did, I think, in the Lyceum address, what was extraordinary about him. He said, he connected it to our founding. Who's going to make a connection between AA and the American founding? He said, we created a nation given to the proposition, the proposition, the proposition that all men are created equal. That is, we were going to try to do something that's never been done before. A proposition has to be proved. The end of it for Lincoln was a new man. It, that goes back to the gospel. It's at the root of what he's doing with this Alcoholic Anonymous group that he's talking with. So when, when the founders created, I hope that's clear, I don't want to rush over that. When the founders made our democracy, they understood it as a proposition to be proved, but they knew that they were going to have to do something that had never been done before. And that way, and by the way, the beginnings of this are the Aeneid, the universal city in which all people come together. And those of you who are with me in the Aeneid know the cost of that fight, because the tribal loyalties that keep men separate from each other was vicious. It makes men kill each other. Look at the tribal loyalties going on in America today. And, and where they've received support from a government, I don't even want to go there. God makes me angry. America was dedicated to this proposition. 
that all men are created equal, to bring people together in a spirit of brotherhood, to get past tribal loyalties. Because what do you find in the rest of the world? People either divided by class or they're divided by tribes, by race. What's the cost of doing that? Constant battle. That was our commitment. The Constitution was written up in that. I'm not going to answer your question directly, but let me ask a question sort of in the way, Debbie. How successful have we been in getting past racial divisions? And how much have recent precedents done to get us past black-white racial divisions? Um, we're not going to be who we are as a people. So if you, if you look at the struggles moving, the Civil War, we fought a civil war over racial divisions, that one race was inferior to another and got past that war. Um, so are, are we moving forward with any real understanding of what we're about as a country and whether or not we can do this without God's help? That's our founding. I mean, I don't want to get too political here, but just from, since you asked, my view is to whatever, we have gone way beyond that and we are lost now as a country because we've lost sight of those principles. When you, go on, when you listen to political arguments today, they seem to have so little sense of what it is we set out to do and what we had to do with ourselves in order to do that. So in that respect, I'd say um, we're lost. I think the, the, the modern ideological mind, I happen to believe that's more left, that's the left-leaning in America, the ideological mind, is not grounded in nature, it's grounded in ideas, and that's what an ideological, it's, it's like the social contract. It's got an idea, a vision. When a president is motivated by that kind of a vision, there's very little that he's going to do that isn't going to result in some harm. Um, so I think, um, I, th I think we have lost our way pretty seriously is my own view and let me stop there because I could go on and on and I don't want to. This is not the time. And I'm trying to be careful of. No, not thank you. Sorry? I do broaden as most people have gotten to be ideological. Yeah. Yep. Thinkers, yep. Their world is the only world yeah. that exists in yes. other people's world. Yeah. It's so true. One of the differences between a conservative and a liberal, I've wanted to avoid this, but let me put it out. And by the way, I don't think all conservatives are good, and the Republican Conservative Park program to me has fallen in a black hole. But a true conservative, I don't mean a political conservative who's looking out for his own interests, the wealthy, the, you know. One of the differences between a conservative and a liberal is that a liberal is anti-dogmatic. I mean, that's the, if you go back to the roots of liberalism in the 19th century, it's against dogma, anti-dogmatic. It doesn't have a positive ground on which to stand. So it looks at anything dogmatic as bigoted, prejudiced. You know, um, It wants to move towards a secular world, so it, the ideological mindset comes into play. <coughs> a good conservative rest his position on nature, something in nature, that there's something there to stand on. He may be bigoted, he may be bad, but you know, he's, he's resting on some understanding of nature. And if he's a good conservative, 
and his, his mind is in eternity, I mean, we're supposed to make our judgments by, then he should be not ideological, not rigid, not, I mean, he, he should work with the spirit unfolding over time. He should be open to, you know, lots of conservatives aren't that way, but. Anyway, a fundamental difference between the conservatives and liberal, at least as I understand it, is that. And that both of them can go bad, but generally a conservative is on, on safer ground because he rests on dogmas, his whole view of the world rests. He accepts certain things, you know, God. Um, yeah, but it depends on what dogma you, you rest on. Yeah, and what religion. Yeah, yes, for sure, for sure. One of the things that America is trying to become today is a, is a modern secular utopia. Mm -hmm. It wants to get past dogmas and see if we can't create a secular world that doesn't rest on God because religion is divisive. Um, Christians and Muslims are over... It, it, there are fundamental differences between them that, that are going to make for a war because you can't get around it. If you go to the heart of their religious beliefs, they won't be able to get along, um, the, even if we get along under law peacefully the way we do today. But what America's, what, what's happened in the modern world is America set itself on a course of trying to become a secular world in which all people can get along together without dogmas. And we're watching that, that worldview begin to unravel, I think, right now. It's my, let me stop, because I, I could go, I don't want to do this, sorry, but if, if I can just leave it briefly at that. Thank you. I appreciate you indulging me. I'm not indulging you. I'm answering a heartfelt question. Okay, I want to just, um, I want to quickly go through the Eula section. You remember the end of the Phlegm section. Um, we've got Ratliff. <coughs> wait, wait, by the way, the. the you know, I've said this before. The, the major theme of, this, is, this goes so much to this whole thing, this background thing I just gave you on a world without God. The whole of the, the, the um, trilogy, the Snopes trilogy, is about, this is really interesting, God putting his house in order. That's going to be the ultimate theme. So even if he's not visible right now, just know looking ahead. You, when the mansion comes, it's going gonna, it's gonna to hit you over the head. I mean, something's going to happen that... It certainly knocked my socks off when I saw it. It just is amazing. But you can, we can say that the whole trilogy about, is about God putting his house in order. The hamlet begins in an agrarian world. It's a hamlet in which people, a southern culture, agrarian, comfortable with you, trusting each other, right? Jody, he's not in the store. The men come and go. They take things. They put in their coins. Everybody trusts each other. Um, and then Snopes comes along in a whole new way uh, begins to assert itself into this culture, and I would call it northern banking, Pharisaic, and um, legalistic. It makes law um, the basis of everything, a code, and we're going to watch what happens in that. I, I want to come to that, and we'll go into that a little bit more. But, um, but what's happening is this agrarian culture is standing by, watching this happen, and doing nothing about it. You, you've got to feel that more in a more tr 
troublesome way in the Yule episode, the Yule episode, or no, sorry, it's the, uh, it's the long summer. I'm going to give this away. I can't give it away because I put it away. Something's going to happen in the long summer. But you see it in FOIA. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's amazing that, that nobody <coughs> does anything. Right, I mean, right. There's, there's a basic fear yeah. about the burning barn, but I mean, come on. Right. You know? Well, here, but wait, let, I, I want to try to be fair with, because I want to try to stay with Fogner. When you get to the long summer, something's going to happen that is going to bring Ratliff to a point of real anger. You, um, you see it at the end of Eula already. We don't see it. You know that he's really upset because of what happens at the end of the Eula section, that she gets married off. When the long, long summer starts, he's furious. And something's going to happen then that's going to highlight that. For, I can't go into it. <laughs> something's going to happen to the men. They're going to line up for something. And Ratliff has a sense of what it's about. And when he sees what it is, he's going to get furious. <clears throat> Hold off on it. At the same time, if, if those of you who've read it know, but those of you who haven't will come to it, you know that a courtship has taken place. This extraordinary, you'll, you'll come to a section where you'll, you'll get these descriptions of this lover waiting for the beloved. And it's all presented in this pastoral, idyllic world, flowers and wreaths, and it, it, it's a little bit like going back to the Greek world and the shepherd, from which, our, from which we get the shepherd, the pope, out of that pastoral world. But he's waiting for the, the beloved, and the beloved comes, and we get this long section of this courtship in what the lover goes through with his beloved. So keep two things together. One of them is... You've got this long line of men lining up for something I'm, that I'm not going to mention, and this courtship taking place juxtaposed, because Faulkner does that often, putting two things. He doesn't judge, he just sets them up. So we're be becoming more and more aware of how bad this is. So in the Eula section, um, we, we, we get hints of this, or I'm sorry, in the Flem section, that Flem, Flem is moving up. At the very, so all of these men are watching it. Nobody's doing anything. They're, well, take a look at the Catholic Church 40 years ago when abortion or, you know, or whatever it was, or gay marriages, or, or not the Catholic Church, Catholics, period, us, watching this happen in innocence. <clears throat> so if one of the major themes of this section is the sacrifice of Eula, it seems to me one of the major themes of the whole work is the education of the South, and more specifically, the education of Ratliff. Because he's the one who takes this on. You know that at the end of the Phlegm episode, he learned about this northerner who bought this goat ranch and um, lacked 50 goats. And he goes into the store knowing Phlegm and what Phlegm is going to do, and he starts dropping hints where he can find these 50 goats Bookwright says, quickly go get him, Ratliff delays, because he wants Flem to have time to go, because he knows he is, and he does. And the section ends with Ratliff going to the store and saying, you won, how much? Flem wants 50, I think it's, he, um, Ratliff got them for 75, he expected to, um, 
or he got them for 25, he expects to ask 75, so he expects a $50 or a 50 cent profit. Flem says 50, and that cuts his profit in half, so he won't do it. He says, I can tear up the paper, because Flem doesn't know where it is. I mean, he, he could find out, but it, it's, it's the principle that's at issue. He brings, so Flem agrees to the note. He, he will give the note um, to uh, Ratliff or um, make the exchange, and Ratliff burnt, he gives the note, and you know it's the note from Mink. So Ratliff's not out anything, and Flem is, because he has to sign that note. So Ratliff beats him, but then before the scene is over, Flem says, wait, and he goes to get the other note from of I, I, or Ike, the idiot. And when Ratliff sees that it's Ike, and he knows that note will continue to get used by Flem, he brings it up. So Flem beats him. So it's a standoff. Now, remember in the beginning of the, the Flem episode, when Varner and Ratliff meet, Ratliff says to Varner, there's only, and Jody thinks he's got control, and we watch Jody capitulate everywhere. I mean, he, what he does is open the door for Ratliff. I mean, it's just embarrassing to watch what he does. Ratliff and Varner are watching it all, and Ratliff, when Varner comes to Ratliff to ask for advice, he wants his mind on it. And that scene ends with Ratliff saying to Varner, there aren't but two men in this county that can deal, are capable of dealing with Flintstones. One of them has the last name Varner, and his first name is not Jody. <laughs> and he says the other one hasn't been proved yet, and he leaves it that way. And you know at the end of the Flem episode, um, Ratliff sends a, a message to Varner by way of Little John and says, tell Varner it ain't been proved yet. And we all know what that means, because he thought he would beat Snopes. And what a plus that would be for the culture, that, that everybody could know that Snopes is vulnerable, but he can't. So it's like a, detect, a suspense. We're waiting to find out what's going to happen, particularly in this engagement between Ratliff and Snopes. Flynn. So um, that's how the Flem episode ends, okay? In the, jo or in the Eula episode, very quickly, I'm just going to run through this, we get the opening years of Eula's birth and how, um, how lazy and indolent. Um, Ratliff, or the, the narrator, often uses words like stasis. And I want to come back to that for a second because it seems to me he's showing a principle of something feminine. Women may not like this, but she's obviously voluptuous, sexual. Jody's so embarrassed at her sexuality, he wants her to walk to school. She doesn't do anything, she doesn't move, she just doesn't want to move. Um, but he's so embarrassed when he watches her walk to school because all these men line up to watch her. And he has that description where he says it's almost like she gives off a scent. And he's so humiliated that he, he's determined to get her there. So he puts her on a horse behind him. Well, he keeps feeling this body bounce against his back and there's something, I mean, he's a brother, but also there's something a little bit puritanical. And Jody's described as being this principle of bachelorhood. He's just offended by it and it, what it does is make him angrier and angrier and angrier that he, that he has to do it, but he does. And at some point he gets the idea of asking her to put on a corset as if this would contain her. It's just called, Suzanne woke up one morning and she said, I hadn't put it together. She said, but I was reminded when I was a little girl that women still wore corsets. You know, it wasn't just a, I guess, a lower body corset, but a full corset that 
held her in check and why Jody would have wanted to do that. So there are all these comic scenes of Jody having to deal with her. And then we get the LaBeouf story where this teacher becomes so enthralled with her um, in an obsessive way, sexually, from the time I think she's eight through years. He doesn't want to teach. When he graduates from school, there's that description of his, all, all he has to do is walk straight ahead and follow the procession and go out the door and go into law school. And it says he couldn't do it. That, that's how powerful, and by the way, I want, to, I want to emphasize this as much as I can. That's how powerful the, the sexual beauty of, that's the power of a woman over a man. That kind of sexual beauty. We saw this in the Odyssey. Remember with Odysseus at, um, with Calypso and Circe? That in the presence of a, a, a particularly a, a sexually attractive woman, a voluptuous woman, that a man is almost undone. We saw that with her brother. We see it with Lebov. Um, the story comes to an end when Lebov is um, almost adoring the bench that she's on. She comes in and he starts to grope at her and she says, get your hands off me, you headless Ichabod crane. So she has enough moral something in her to reject him. He assumes that when she goes out, she's going to tell her brother and that her brother's going to um, save her honor and that he's going to expect a duel and die. He goes into the store and Jody shows no awareness of it and he reels that Eula didn't even give it a thought. And that's obviously humiliating to him because it shows him how little she thought of him. And he takes off. The next section deals with all of those men who come in waves. And I, I don't want to go through it because I want to go to the end. But these men come in waves year by year. They begin with mules. They go to buggies and horses. And then the four buggies, the four men. And you remember one of them is the drummer from out of, out of town. He gets beaten up. He takes Eula out. And um, she comes home. He, he gets beaten up and is sent off. And they learn that he was married anyway. And then McCarran comes. He reminds me of that guy Dalton in uh, Sound of Fury. A stud. And there are these descriptions of Eula and McCarran going to this stream and the rain's going slack. And they're stopping and it says, and it stops and stops and stops. I can't remember that he says, stop, stop. We know that they're making out that they're, um, the other men are furious that McCarran has this one-upmanship one up on them. And one night they anticipate him and wait for them and then they attack them, five men. And McCarran beats them off and Eula helps. But McCarran's arm is broken. She takes him home. Varner sets it and he goes to bed. And there's that beautiful description of, her going upstairs in the dress she changed into, except this time the blood was her own. So we know that she's no longer a virgin, that the two had sex. And then we learn a page later that Eula's pregnant. Three months later, she's pregnant. And Jody goes nuts. And that section ends with Varner, Eula, and Flem going to the railroad station, to, to the court to get married, and then to the railroad station. There's that beautiful description of Ratliff coming into town that day and seeing them go into the courts and knowing exactly what's going to happen and going to the train station. And that, that's where I want to go now. Everybody's clear in the plot, right? Um, so in one sense, and there's that extraordinary description, I'm going to read it here, of Eula to, to make really clear just how powerful the beauty of a woman is over man. 
Um, I, and when I, when I read this stuff, I tried to imagine Sophia Loren growing up as a girl. I'm not kidding. For a girl to grow up that way, how could the other girls not be aware of her? And how can the men not do anything but drool? I mean, what does a man do looking at a woman like that when he's 10, 12, 14? And the description of these men is they, they don't want to marry her. Why would you marry anybody like that? Because you know what kind of a life you're... They all just want to have one night with her and go on. So Faulkner does everything he can to be clear about the power of sexuality. We saw it in Jody, we saw it in LaBeouf, we saw it in the men fighting each other, going to bare knuckles on a creed, and you know, I mean, it's just, so again and again he makes it clear how men are driven into their appetites and how helpless they are there. Go to the end here. Page 164. <clears throat> now imagine Ratliff because you know he's been struggling to deal with phlegm. Wait, I've got it. I mean, this has got to really be clear here. He's, it's really clear to him probably more than anybody else. Book, book right and told seem to have some sense of what's going on. But Ratliff is keener. He's sharper. And he's sardonic. He's, he's not Achilles. He's not going to go in and fight a war. He tried to beat him, lost, or came to a tie. He comes into town this day and watches them go to the courthouse. He knows exactly what's going on. He goes to the train station in anticipation of their getting there. And sure enough, they show up. We know how shrewd this guy is. Now, what he's just watched is Eula betrayed. Because this extraordinarily beautiful creature that all the men in town know about has just, has just been married over to Flam Snoops. He, he, he helped us with this because in the chapter before, it's told from Eula's point of view, when Flem lives with him, she says she couldn't stand him. She walks by and calls him sir as if she were saying Mr. Dog. Remember that line? She has no care for this man, but she's married off to him to save the Varner honor. So this is this beautiful creature, extremely sexual, who's been given to this thing. Now imagine what's going on in Ratliff as he watches this. Okay, on page 164, top of the page. Um, he didn't have to go um, to the clerk's office. He said he could have witnessed the marriage, but he did not. He did not need to. He knew what was happening now, and he'd already gone to the station. There, waiting an hour before the train was due, and he was not wrong. He saw the straw suitcase and the big telescope bag go into the vestibule. In that juxtaposition, no more paradoxical and bizarre, he saw the calm, beautiful mask between the, the Sunday hat once more beyond a moving window, looking at nothing, and that was all. I, that, you just, you've got to hear, and that was all. This extraordinary, beautiful creature has grown up. Everybody knows there's something extraordinary about her. She's married off. It's gone. It's done. I think that's one of the major themes of the first part. She was betrayed. She was sacrificed to this flawed sense of male honor. For the, so the father could save his honor, the family honor. So we've been watching all these men sell out to Snopes in their preoccupation with business trades. And now we see the cost of it. This beautiful young girl is given over to marriage. The, the last line before that, you know, in the... Um, on 163 at the bottom. And so one day they clapped her into her Sunday clothes, put on the rest of her things, 
the tawdry mail order negligees and nightgowns, the big cheap flimsy shoes, and what toilet things she had, into the tremendous bag and took her to town in a surrey and married him to and married her to him. She's married off. The next page, go back to where we were, and that was all. If he had lived in Frenchman's Bend during itself during that spring and summer, he would have known no more. A little, that is, they're gone. They got on the train, they're gone. Days go on, right? We're gonna, that's gonna be reinforced in the next whole page and a half. A little lost village, nameless, without grace, forsaken, yet which wombed once by chance and accident one blind seed of the spendthrift Olympian ejaculation, and did not even know it, without tumescence conceived and bore one bright brief summer concentric, during which three fairly well horse buggies stood in steady rotation along a picket fence. These are all these rituals. Remember we talked about that in the short stories, these rituals that we create. Along a picket fence or spun along adjacent roads between the homes and the crossroads stores and the schoolhouses and churches where people gathered for pleasure or at ease for escape and then overnight and simultaneously were seen no more. So concentric is in, eccentric going out, then eccentric. Buggies gone, vanished. A lean, loose-jointed, cotton-socked, shrewd, ruthless old man, the splendid girl with her beautiful mask-like face, the frog-like creature which barely reached her shoulder, cashing a check, buying a license, taking a train. Oh, we're not. You've read this. I, this is one of my, I've got two major questions here that I want to ask. One of them has to do with this word. Now, you know all, you, everybody's following what happens, right? She and Flem are off to Texas. I don't know what that says about Texas, but um, they're off for Texas. And then he, after having described this moment, he says this, cashing a check, buying a license, taking a train, a word, a single will to believe, born of envy and old deathless regret, murmured from cabin to cabin above the washing posts and the sewing, from wagon to horseman in roads and lanes, or from rider to halted plow and field furrows, the word, the dream, and wish of all male under sun capable of harm, the young, so the old, the young, the young who only dreamed yet of the ruins they were still incapable of, the sick and the main sweating and sleeping beds, impotent for the harm they willed to do, the old, now glamless earth creeping, the very buds and blossoms, the garlands. So, all over the town, from wagon to horseman, the word, the young, the old, the sick, and even the plants. The very buds and blossoms, the garlands of whose yellowed triumphs had long fallen into profitless dust, embalmed now no more dead to the living world, if they were sealed in buried vaults behind the impregnable matronly calico of others' grandchildren's grandmothers. The word, with its implications of lost triumphs and defeats of unimaginable splendor, and which best to have had that word, that dream and hope for future, or even had need to flee the world and dream for past, even one of the actual buzzies remain. Now what he's gonna do is describe this buggy in its various apotheoses, that it, it takes on different lives. It's, it's, it's like a declension, it goes from, the buggy that was used that night when they fought, you know, um, that it goes through these different stages of decline. Um, Watching it come through town, perhaps recognized, perhaps not, while its new owner marred, married, and began to get a family. 
go down. Um, and then another appearance behind a succession of spavined and bony horses and mules and wire rope patch harness as if its owner had horsed it 10 minutes ago out of a secret bone yard for this particular final swan songs apotheosis. As if eventually that, that wagon would disintegrate, would finally disappear which woefully misinformed as to its own capacities was each time not the last. So it's like as, as much as the last vestige of a, some sign that pointed back to that meeting with McCarran and Eula, it will never go out. Um, there would be another and another and another. Sorry. Just hit it. Thank, yeah, there. No, 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 that's okay, Bev. What's going on? What is this word? That's a long extended description after, I think we're meant to think this is Ratliff's reflection. We get it from the narrator, but that was all. They take off. We get this description of how extraordinary she was. Um, he would, if, if he had lived in Frenchman's Bend itself during that spring and summer, he would have not, known no more. It's as if she was never there. They're gone. You know, as if nothing happened. And that was all. Um, he would have known no more. A little lost village, nameless, without grace, forsaken yet, which wombed once by chance and accident when blind seed of the spendthrift Olympian ejaculation. It did not even know it without tumescence conceived and bore and these two, one concentric and the other eccentric, and the, um, the two of them going off, followed by this word. And what's Faulkner doing with this word? This, this word. A word, a single will to believe, born of envy and old deathless regret, murmured from cabin to cabin. Um, it passes the old, the young, the sick, the plant life, goes through the villages. They were sealed in buried tombs behind the impregnable matronly calico of others' grandchildren's grandmothers. The word, with its implications of lost triumphs and defeats of unimaginable splendor, and which best to have had that word, that dream and hope for future, to have need, to have had, had need to flee that world and dream for past even if one of the buggies remain and is still left over as a sign of it. What's, what, what, how are we to understand this word? What's happening right here? You don't get me. <laughs> well, I, I don't know whether it's what Fogner was trying to say, but I guess it's more or less like what, what I thought in the sense that in, in the absence, the word I guess kind of came up to me as sort of, you know, Christ in a sense, that in, in the absence of Christ, things come and things go. And what you think is important really isn't. And what we've seen unfold in this story was, you know, beautiful girl having an incredible influence on the people around her and, and is gone, fleeting. And so I guess to me it was a reflection by Faulkner on if we if we focused on the wrong things, these things come and these things go, but they really aren't relevant in the grand scheme of things. Two 
You had something. I haven't read the whole thing yet completely, but it seems to me that it might be just the death of a way of life. It's, it's over. It's transient. The South is... But it's not, it says it's, we, well, each time okay, was not the last. All right, but yes, but what remains is just a reminder to me. Yeah, I don't mm -hmm. know. That's, that was my idea. Yeah, what yeah. remains is just this artifact. It existed, and there's pieces of it, the shell of it that goes on. Mm -hmm. But the, the the other world has won. But I don't know for sure. I've yeah. gotten into this as not. Anybody else? Anybody with the right answer? <laughs> <laughs> I, well, I myself have, I mean, I'm puzzled over this. I, I act, my own sense of it is sort of combines with the two of you saying. I, my sense of what he's saying in the passage is, it's as if nothing happened, but no, everybody knows that that's not so. When, a, when an event like that happens, a rumor, get, a story gets told, like a myth develops. It's the, it's the beginning of a myth. And it will not fade out, even if the last vestige of it is this buggy that, <coughs> undergoes all these transformations. It's as if something of the longing, uh, where's that? Uh, a single will to believe, born of envy and old deathless regret, all that was contained in what happened, McCarran, the men going after her, the longing, even, even if none of them wanted to marry her, there's this deep longing that's awakened by beauty, um, and it's answered this way. So this word that gets passed on, my sense, is rumors, stories, a, a word um, that contains all of the hopes, the defeats, so much of what people don't even begin to understand, you know, when they pass on the story, because it'll go from one house to another. Are the people in one house going to feel it as deeply as the other? Probably not. And yet it, that word continues to live. That even if it's a shell or a, I'm reminded of the lotus flowers in the Eliot poem. You remember when we talked about the, the scent is still there even when the roses die? That something, it's almost something immemorial took place. And you've got a shell of it, a, a faded replica of it. It's something, but it's the word. And I, it's just hard for me yeah. to believe if that isn't, if whether Faulkner is conscious of it or not, I don't know. But whether something of the word isn't at the bottom of this in a way that people don't fully understand. I, I have a question. Yeah. This is my reading of it, which I think Mary Jane said to you earlier. Is Faulkner holding this up, or do you think of Eula as true and good and something that should be longed for? Or is it misplaced lust, where you should be longing for something more pure God? That, that it was never going to satisfy, that it was doomed from the beginning to end somehow, maybe it, like this. It meaning it was... Well, that Eula, and, and everybody's reaction to her was... See, I don't, I don't see her as beautiful. I see her as disgusting. And so I have trouble. I, I understand the lust, but to me, that's not the longing you should have. It's misplaced. It's, 
close because it looks really good, but it's <laughs> like candy. Yeah. Honey, should, yeah. I don't know. I mean, yeah. that's I'm having trouble with this because yeah. I don't yeah. really like her very yeah. much, and I yeah. don't admire her. And I understand she's sexual. I get that. I mean, I get all the, mm -hmm. you know, but that to me is animal where it's not spiritual. And yeah. I don't know what Faulkner meant. I mean, I just don't, I don't read it that way. And maybe it's because I'm a woman. And, yeah. you know, it's, I don't know. Let me try to bring in a couple of perspectives here. One is, and I've thought about this a lot, because I enjoy, I, I enjoy Eula because she's a human creature and she's been badly used. We um, One of the one of the prisoners said on Monday night um, they didn't feel sorry for her at all. I mean, she made a bad choice. I mean, you can run this down and, and get moralistic about it. Um, it. It just seems to me there's larger things going on here, and it requires bringing several things together. If you've listened to Father, if you've listened to Father's homilies, you talk about animal social. Like I can't put all the things. For Faulkner, for any good writer, certainly a Christian writer, you can never separate the animal and spiritual ever. Okay. Because wait wait let me okay. that, because they're inseparable we are we are animals um, humans we belong to an animal kingdom we have a body we're not angelic angels don't have bodies so there's an animal side to it that's why for me Homer's so good because that gets the calypso and Circe show both aspects of it on on from one perspective there's something important I think to see here in Faulkner's treatment of Eula how. I don't want to push this very far, but I think there's something to be said for his treatment of woman as woman in this sense. And I think of Mary, and I know this is probably going to be embarrassing, and you may not want to see me again, but, but a woman has a womb. She can conceive a child. She waits on. She doesn't have to do anything. It's given to her. She waits on something. And I think Faulkner's treatment of her is true in that respect. It's a parody. I mean, you can laugh at it. It's so, you know, it's so overdone. But, but this notion of female stasis, of waiting, I think is peculiar, more peculiar to woman than of man. Woman has a beauty. Um, the, the, the traditional understanding is that she waits for a pursuer, that for, for somebody to, to fall in love with that. To, and her, her womb is there to receive. So feminist, I know a feminist, I, I'm not a feminist, I don't, but... I know that there are feminists who talk about this thing called feminine stasis. This, it's like a principle that's. You can look at the male. You can look at phlegm as a parody of the male principle. The intellect just going and never and using. You know. I don't want to push either of those too far because if you do, they become absurd. But I think there's something real to that. That, that I think about Sophia Loren. If you're a woman who has that kind of beauty, um, what's education going to do for you? I mean, it's almost like you've got it all anyway. What, I mean, if you're that beautiful, and I, you, you know the value I place in education. I mean, if I had a daughter like that, I'd want her to be educated. Um, but I think he's sort of parodying that, that there's something there. So I, don't, I myself don't find her repulsive. I find it intriguing to see her that way. The more important thing for me is that he's not dealing with um, animal angelic, that perspective doesn't, he's dealing with a fallen world in men and women, both. And um, Eula, in some sense, is a very believable figure for me. When I think about Sophia, Gina Lode, Bridget, Marilyn Monroe doesn't come close, but something of that sort of womanhood that a woman is given when she grows up, I mean, how does, 
it, it seems to me that there's something there because she's so defined in herself that everybody will feel no matter what they have, they're going to lack something next to her. In terms of womanhood, the, the sexual nature of us, I don't want to press it beyond that. But the, the more important thing for me is that he's, he's showing us a world not according to what we should do, even though that's implied here because none of the men step forward. I mean, Varner should never have sold her off. You know, that, 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 that's not good. But it's understandable for me in my experiences of men and women what happens because that to me is a commonplace. If you watch all the scandals going on in our world right now, and that's only the surface things. The sexual appetite, Freud's theories go to it. The sexual appetite is probably the most intense appetite that men and women have. So um, should they be doing it? No, but Faulkner's not dealing with it. He's showing what's happening in a culture where a woman happened to grow up, you know, in this, happened in this town, and what this town finally does with her. And I think our focus should be there, that we're, that we're watching something that was really extraordinary sold off. You can say it, it, the parody may have gone too far. I don't happen to think so because I, that's my belief that those things are real and, and those things happen all the time around us. The greater concern for me is the drama that's going on involving it. That whether whether people that. whether right. people are whether people or and, and another thing, when you get to the next section of the line, it's going to be interesting to see what you say then because the courtship is going to go on that may chase you away from this class. But we remember we live in a world in which people no longer look. We've become mechanical, mechanized in the way that you could say it's a it's an unironic, loveless world, and Faulkner's laying that bare. He's showing there's something lost in this world. So, go ahead, sorry. No, no, that's okay. Just that I, I when I said I found her disgusting, I'm talking about like physically, not, I don't fault her. She's, she's a victim in this, I agree. But it seems to me that there is this dissonance between what we ought to be longing for. And, and, and this is the, I mean, it's really depraved in the way this I have one last question. Wait, one I I couldn't agree. Otherwise, I mean, if we don't come together with some sense in Christ in our life, why? I mean, we. I wouldn't be here. So I don't have any question about that. But when I read this, as Faulkner's presented, to me, it's very real. It's a commonplace in my knowledge of the world, my experience of the world, from what I see going around me. Pornography is rife in the world, and and women are becoming more involved in it. From everything I hear. What Faulkner's doing is, is showing us something about our world concerning sexuality and what happens to it in this social contract culture that's developing. So for me, the focus for me is on that and how, what, it's, what it says about our culture and our, and our relations as men and women with each other. Um, I've got to get to this vision of Ratliff's Quick, can, can, go ahead, can you make this? Well, no, it, it, it's just that she was apparently unaware of, of her impact on other people, at least that was, came up in the, mm -hmm. and yet, so it wasn't so much, okay, well, I'm beautiful, so I don't need to be anything else. Mm -hmm. So what kind of disturbed me was her lack of wanting to do or accomplish anything. Mm -hmm. In, including mm -hmm. getting up and walking right. to school or, right. Or, right. or getting up and walking. 
I mean, she went from chair to chair in her own right. home. Yes. So was, the only thing I was concerned with was I'm missing something else that Faulkner was trying to tell us in terms of the culture or the state or something else, because that was the part that troubled me, yeah. I guess. And her mother wasn't much different mm -hmm. in his description of how she was perfectly happy, you know, convincing around the house. I mean, was he just trying to, was there something else there that I was missing? I don't think so. I'm, I'm, those, I think both of your descriptions are pretty faithful to what's going on. I, I would just, I don't see the mother as the same because she's busy, she works all day. It's the men, if you, if you think about what's going on, the, the women are at home busy taking care of the house. Suzanne was really, she, I mean. But that's it, that's all they seem to need. Right, right, right. This is not so a- Their scope is still very small. Yeah, right. This is, this is not a, a feminist world. I mean, this is a traditional world and Faulkner's <coughs> showing it and f I think in some ways laying it bare every aspect of it. Um, the, the men are busy at harvest and um, planting time. The rest of the year, they're on a porch sitting down and, and on the the, only the men are there. The women are always busy. Eula stands out in that regard for exactly you know the, the way you describe her. I don't think she's conscious at all. But let me just offer this. I'll just I'm repeating myself, but for what it's worth, I think in some respect he's showing. I think unless I'm really misreading this, what I think he's presenting as something hidden away in the female character, and it's not because he. He believes women shouldn't aspire or try to accomplish things. I think what he's doing is showing an, an aspect of stasis. He's not recommending it. He's not saying women should do this. I think he's saying there's something in the female. Think about Calypso or Circe. Or, there's something in the feminine at root, archetypally, that it has. This is one of the qualities of womanhood. Um, it's parodies, it's enlarged, it's played out. She isn't like the other women, but she isn't like the other women because she's so extraordinarily sexual. He, he sh it's like you took a sexual principle to the 10th or 100th degree to see what it was. You know, if you were that kind of, if, I, I can only picture what Sophie Lauren or somebody like her would. Anyway, let's quickly, I want to get to this. Turn to the Ratliff. vision of phlegm in hell on page 166. I want to do this just quickly. He, he meditates on what just happened. When you get to the long summer, if you've read it, you know it's going to open with Ratliff really mad. He almost cannot contain himself, his anger is so great. Right here, he's not. He, he, he meditates on what's happened and then we have this vision of Ratliff. Um, <clears throat> at the bottom 166 and beautiful, but then so did the highwayman's daggers and pistols make a pretty shine on him. And now as he watched, the lost calm face vanished, it went fast, it was as if the moving glass were a retrograde, it too merely a part, a figment of the concentric flotsam and jetsam of the translation. It's all been ruined. These are the ruins left, flotsam and jetsam, or what's left in, a, in the water after a tornado. And there remain only the straw bag, the minute tie, the constant jaw. The one thing that's remaining principle against this feminine principle, this whatever we say of you, is phlegm. Chewing is 
what he chews on his. And then Ratliff had this vision. Until at last, baffled, they came to the prince himself. Sorry, he says, he just went. He won't. We can't do nothing with him. What? And he says, a bargain's a bargain. Everything Flynn does depends on people holding to a law. Uh, just a comment on this. We know that every law that's made is generally speak. most laws that are made are generally for some good. And we also know that over time, something hidden in the law comes to the surface that's not good. Slavery, abortion, whatever the law. People legislate laws and over time it's discovered that there was something there. Now, that means, remember Portia in Merchant of Venice, she used the law, but she got to the, she, she achieved the end of the law when nobody else around her couldn't. They were using the law for themselves. Shylock wanted it enforced, which meant Antonio would die. The Christians want him off. They wanted to do away with the law. So people can interpret a law in a way that um, gains them their own self-interest, what it is they're after. And we know from Plato's cave that the, with respect to this question of justice, he said, and this goes right to that, that Old Testament song, that um, the one thing that people had to deal with was seeming. And he knew that it, was, it wasn't until a man would come who would be crucified, who would have to give up everything that we would learn what the true just man was, because until that point, everybody would go through the motions to seem to be just when they weren't. It would only be when a man was crucified, so all seeming would be done away with, that we could see what real justice was. That's from Plato. So we know that all law is susceptible to our making of what we want. And we can seem to do good when sometimes we don't. I hope that's clear. That's why Christ came in, because he did away with any question about what we do with it. And, and so much of this is an interpretation, right? Because some people will interpret a law one way, others will interpret another. It was only when somebody who was just, who was innocent, would be crucified that all seeming would be taken away. That's how intrinsic seeming is to our fallen life. Okay? Everything Flem does is according to law, holding people to a, to a law. He, he got off in court, or as Ab did. Um, he's capable of using the law to his advantage. He just does now in marriage. Okay? So this question of law and the role it plays in our culture is not a small one. It's been with us from the Merchant of Venice. We saw it, Dante. The henchman says, give him what he wants. And um, he says, we tried to give him all these things, but he wouldn't do it. He wants, he wants what he came for. The problem here is that they lost his file. Remember, and the, the file, the, it's this little matchbook. This is an image of um, Flem's soul. <laughs> this is, well, I hope the reason for the matchbox is obvious, right? The matchbox is an image of Flem's soul because what he, he holds a power over everybody because of the threat of burning their barns. And what you find when you open the matchbox is this little smudge. That's his soul. They can't find it. And because they can't, he has this over them. So, um, so he finally brings Flem into the presence of the prince on page 169. So they brought him in and went away and closed the door. His clothes, his clothes was still smoking a little. Though soon he had done 
brushed most of it off. He came up to the throne, chewing, toting the straw suitcase. Well, the prince says, he turned his head and spit, the spit frying off the floor quick in a little blue ball of smoke. I came about that soul, he says. So they tell me, the prince says, but you have no soul. Is that my fault, he says? Is it mine, the prince says? Do you think I created you? Then who did, he says, and he had the prince there. This one-upsmanship, is that clear what just happened? Because to acknowledge a creator means there's somebody greater than the prince. prince. So, it, so Flem had that one. So he's one up on the prince there. Go down. He offers things he doesn't want them. Then what do you want, the prince says. What do you want, paradise? I hadn't figured on it, he says. Is it yours to offer? Then whose is it, the prince says. And the prince knows he had him there. <laughs> <laughs> It's this one-upsmanship between these men, God. Um, go down the bottom, 169. Therefore your soul was mine all the time. And therefore when you offered it as security for this note... By the way, I hope every, this is an archetype of what's been playing out between all these men from the beginning, between Ab and Pat Stamper, all these men, you're going to see it through the whole of, I mean, men are going to be constantly engaging these things to try to be better. And to, for what? To get ahead of somebody else. What drives Flynn? To, nothing to, except to get ahead. That's all that drives him. There's no emotion. There's no sex. There's no desire except to get ahead. This note you offered that which you did not possess and so laid yourself liable. I've never disputed that, he says. The prince is just, he goes on and on. Criminal action, so take your bag. The prince says, huh? The prince says, what did you say? I've never disputed that, he says. What the prince says? Disputed what? Except that it don't make any noise, and now the prince is leaning forward, and now he felt that air hot floor under his knees, and he can feel himself grabbing and hauling at his throat to get the words out like he was digging potatoes out of hard ground. Who are you, he says choking and gasping in his eyes and popping up at him, setting down with that straw suitcase on the throne among the bright crown-shaped plates. Take paradise, the prince screams. Take it, take it. And the wind roars up and the dark roars down and the prince scrabbling across the floor, clawing and scrabbling at that locked door, screaming, what's happening with this vision? And why here at this moment? What has Ratliff seen? <laughs> How are you over two? I thought you've been right on you. I think you and Sue are don't. I don't see you nullifying. I almost extracted from that that Flynn took you know Prince is the you know the heir apparent to Satan, right? Right. I almost got. I got the sense out of that that Flynn basically took over the throne from the prince. Or or the he airship. Was so, he was so bad. He yep. took over the airship from the prince. In Ratcliffe's mind. Yeah. Page 98, those who watched the clerk now saw not the petty disposition of a blacksmith, but the usurpation of an airship. Remember that line I quoted before? That Flem took over Jody's, usurped his position. But, but it's not just a position, it's a cultural standing. I mean, what's happening is he's, he's undermined a whole culture. He's struck right at it by going at Jody, who is the heir. Stupid as he is. What's going on here at the end? I mean, the parallel is. He beats Varner? Hmm? Flem beats Varner? 
Will older Varner? I don't think so. Because Varner but, had to sell his daughter off. Oh, 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 yeah. So What's Rattler's scene? Yeah, that's right, go ahead. Rattler's first, um, when he says only two people in this town can be Flam. One is you, and one is still to be seen. But with Eulick marrying, being married off to Flam, I don't think Varner can be Flam. Yeah, or, or, or you can put it another way, that ask the question whether Flam hasn't beaten Varner now. But but to me, he has. Yeah, right, right, right. Why this vision? What's Ratliff, what's Ratliff showing us, or what do we see through Ratliff here, besides that Flem has got Varner now? Did, But my own sense of this is this is his vision of how evil Flem is. And I think he, even though it's a parody and it's comic, I, I can't remember which gospel. You know that gospel where, I can't remember, Christ heals and the Pharisees condemn him and he says if, if, that he's doing it by, in the name of Satan because he's going against the law and he says, if I cast out demons... Um, and who do you cast them out? A house divided can't stand. My sense is that he's showing, in a way that I don't think he fully understands yet, but he's seeing the real nature of Flem Snopes. And he, so Eula has just been sacrificed. And I think, this is my reading, that I, I think he's seen the deeper implications of it that nobody else does. That, that, and it's interesting to look at the nature of evil because it, if it's true, Satan's house can't stand. I mean, there, there'll be, we have to see how this plays out at the very end, but in the, if it's true, because the prince is the prince, and he's just been usurped. He, phlegm is there. So there's this principle to evil that undoes itself, and I don't think, I'm, I'm not quite sure that Ratliff sees the full implications of that, but it seems to me at this point, given what just happened, that Yule has been married off, that he understands far better than he did when this whole story began, the real nature of the evil that he's dealing with. And how important the law is, that the law can be manipulated and um, it, it can hide evil. I think what Faulkner said, I think all of us know this, that evil's, I wouldn't, I, I, wouldn't you all agree that evil's too fine for the law to deal with? That evil will always somehow slip through things? The law is never adequate to settle cases. It, it, will, it, will, it will help, but it can never fully answer evil. And here we see Flem um, usurping the prince's place. And it's comic and it's funny, but it's dark. It's showing, it's showing a side to Flem that I don't think anybody else has seen quite clearly, as clearly as Ratliff does here. So. Sorry we're so long, I'm really sorry. The, here, I wanted, to, I wanted to warn you all. Um, 
Don made an interesting comment a, a, a couple of weeks ago. He said the, the language in the town is so much easier, and I, I think it is. The town will be an easier read. The next section you're going to read is going to be simple. It's, straight, it's pr pretty straightforward. But the language I don't think is easy at all. And one of the reasons is this. When, when you watch this courtship unfold, it's going to unfold against a backdrop of um, nuptial... What's that word? The, um, uh, what's the a woman's... Um, what's the membrane called? Hymen? Hmm? Hymen? Yeah. Hymenial. You're, it's going to be sort of a nuptial, hymenial background. Hymenial is a song. It's a traditional wedding song. That, that, that this courtship that's taking place is, is played out against this hymenial orchestrated music that's everywhere because when lovers genuinely love... Remember when I, I told you that the only play that in which I'm, I know of, of a... Of a figure hearing the music of the spheres is Shakespeare's Pericles. The music of the spheres is the music that you hear. It's intellected. You can't experience it with the body, the animal. So purely intellected thing, platonic. That, and, and Pericles is the only man who, that I know of in literature who has experiences it. After this long life of trying to find his, recover his wife and daughter, their return when he didn't expect it. He has a long life of suffering. It's paradisal. He has this moment where he hears the music of the spheres, that harmony of, of God's order behind things. We get that in Dante's Divine Comedy in the Paradiso. And he rests for the first time in his life. He finally rests. Um, what's happening in this courtship scene is a little bit like that, except it's earthly. It's not celestial. It's everywhere. They will rub up against trees or branches or the grass or the wind. But Faulkner's language will be very complicated and very poetic, lyrical, because we're watching a courtship. And you have to remember, this is a world in which men do not give their wives flowers or come home and kiss them or say, I love you, or, and women don't say to their husbands, I love you, thank you, or that, that world is gone. From this world, it's like the sound of the fury. So what we're watching is a courtship in which that does happen and where it does exist there's this extraordinary lyrical backdrop. So when you read it, just be aware of that. Don't, I mean, you may get impatient, want to throw the book away, or throw it at each other, I don't mean, <laughs> um, or throw it at your husband and say, why aren't you like this? Don't go home and do that. Um, anyway, just be aware, it's, it's not gonna be an easy read. But, but what Faulkner's doing, to me, is extraordinary. Just extraordinary. Sorry. See you, see you guys next week. Thanks, you too.